there there are over three hundred and forty four thousand houses of worship uh, of all faiths in the United States. Compared to the number of Starbucks, which we think you know are sort of on every corner, you have to walk back past twenty eight houses of worship till you find your first Starbucks. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Malik and I'll be your host for the program tonight. In 1982, tonight's guest arrived by boat in China to teach and saw religion grow despite the government's efforts to stamp it out. In 1989, as he was flying through Berlin on the way to the Soviet Union, a friend grabbed him and took him to join the first crowds tearing down the Berlin Wall. And in 2001, he was teaching in the Middle East in a town with 20,000 Taliban when the Twin Towers and Pentagon were struck. Two decades as an international educator sparked a desire in Brian Grimm to understand religious oppression and the benefits of religious freedom. He went on to serve in various related positions, including eight years working as the director of Pew Research Center's Religion and Public Life Studies. Brian is currently the president of the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and is one of the world's leading experts on religious demographics and impact. He joins us today to chat about his experiences overseas, the surprising benefits of religious freedom, and the positive impact of letting people freely bring their faith identities to work. Brian, welcome to Grace in 30. Great to be with you, Ed. So tell us how your life changed after 9-11 while you were in uh, the Middle East right when the attacks occurred. Well, the, the change really came before uh, those attacks. Um, I was uh, trying to um, make sense of what it was, just sort of as an intellectually, spiritually, what it is that um, causes people to have certain religious attachments and social attachments. And uh, that previous year when Ramadan, or that year when Ramadan ended, I was sitting out on my balcony and, and there was a field beyond me. And on that field, there, it's just usually like a vacant, you know, it's out in the desert, sort of deserty field and never used for anything except there at the end of Ramadan, all of a sudden, thousands of men, I saw one woman come with an abaya on, it was men and young men, older men, young men, they came and they filled that field up and they were doing a morning prayer before they broke the fast. They could have been eating already, but instead, you know, these people from all over the world came out to that field. And uh, as and they, they were not just Emiratis, they were, you know, uh, workers from all over. Uh, and nobody really coordinated that. Uh, people knew that there was going to be a prayer there. Nobody required them to go. Uh, and just that movement of people, the women are back home cooking up the big feast and uh, you know, this first day during the daylight hours they could eat after Ramadan. And and those, just seeing the power of uh, that social dimension to faith um, and some of the restrictions that come along with that uh, opened my eyes to a whole different uh, world than I had seen uh, previously. So uh, previously I worked, as you mentioned, in, uh, in uh, communist China um, predominantly the Muslim part of China and the West, and then in the Soviet Union, um, 
during the time the Soviet Union was there, and then it was actually dissolved. The union itself was dissolved in my office building uh, in 1991. And so I, I had seen sort of the restrictions from communism, but being in the Middle East uh, before, during, and after 9-11, I saw a different kind of restriction. And so that's what led me uh, in, in my own study of religious freedom uh, to, to measure it not just by what the actions of governments, but also measure the attitudes and actions of groups in society because they can have equal force and, and in some ways even more powerful force when you have restrictions, animosities, hostilities uh, within society uh, can really decrease the amount of freedom someone has. So when I looked at your your LinkedIn profile, one of your endorsers called you probably the world's most knowledgeable researcher and scholar on global restrictions of religion and international religious demography, which is quite the endorsement. Um, give us a quick snapshot. Give us some statistics on religious oppression around the world. And then let's also talk about sort of, you know, the, the scope of religious impact in the, in the United States. Well, I mean, the f sort of beginning place is uh, to dispel the notion that religion is on the decline. So in, in the United States, there's a lot of news that comes out about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, people without a particular faith. Uh, but globally, that, the uh, story is the opposite. So we, uh, the, some of the study, last studies I did at Pew before I had left about uh, seven years ago, uh, looked at the future growth of religion, doing population projections, taking into account conversion, birth rates, migration, mortality. And what we found is that religious populations around the world are projected to grow 23 times more than uh, religiously unaffiliated populations. And a large part of that is because people that have a faith uh, and are active in their faith tend to have more kids. And on average, globally, women that are religious have one kid more uh, per woman in her lifetime than uh, women that are not religious. And so uh, religion is just going to grow demographically. So within that context, we're going to be in a much more religious world uh, 20 years from now than we are today, uh, globally speaking. And then with all the movement of people around the world, uh, barring what's going on right now with the coronavirus, uh, which has shut down that temporarily. But so many people have moved that now there's a, a mixing of people of faiths around the world. And so we have religious growth happening. We have religious mixing happening. Um, and then at the same time, that mixing has been part of uh, a rise in restrictions on religious freedom that have come about in Europe and some in the United States, uh, as well as uh, rises in social hostilities involving religion, both in the West and uh, throughout Asia. So as uh, people have mixed more, uh, just sort of their own society's views on faith uh, have uh, been challenged because there's religious others now among them, uh, or in a globalized world where you have some with power and some that have less power, uh, then they feel like those with power are, are pushing a, maybe a secular worldview or a different worldview than they have. So that's uh, created this 
uh, rise we've seen in global restrictions. And then we also see it coming uh, from uh, countries like China, where uh, in the last five years since Xi Jinping was uh, elevated to being um, the leader, uh, they've gone back to having a higher level of restrictions on religion, trying to sinicize or make more Chinese the religions. Um, so these pressures on religious freedom have been growing um, in at home and abroad. And the projections are today that more than eight and 10 people live in a country where there's higher, very high restrictions on religion coming either from government actions uh, social hostilities or both. Now, is it true that, you know, there's a danger in everything, even religious freedom? I know there are some people that accuse uh, the right in America. They're fighting for the freedom of, of Christians to worship and move about freely. But some people accuse those folks of basically cloaking a discrimination against non-Christian faiths in that effort. What, what, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, religious freedom is uh, for everyone. So by its definition, it's sort of the ability to have a faith, to change your faith, or to have no faith at all. So when you look at what religious freedom is uh, at its fundamental human uh, level, uh, it's that ability to practice your faith or uh, not practice a faith or, or to uh, uh, change your faith. So in that, uh, people that feel like religious freedom in itself is a threat, uh, it's actually a protection because it means that um, nobody uh, should coerce you or force you to believe as they do. Uh, but in the United States at the same time, uh, there's, an, there's uh, a growing sense, as I've talked about this global churn, we have uh, more uh, new religions uh, that have come into the United States in the past 20, 30 years, uh, such as Islam, which has been here for a long time, but there's been um, more immigration of uh, Muslims uh, in recent decades, and um, other you know other faiths have come in, and so there's been a movement to say no, you know this is a Christian country, um, not a um, not a secular country. So that's sort of then getting into political argument uh, about what is the what you know what is the nature of our country? Are we set up to be a Christian country? Um, and and if we are, you know, there, there's not, you know, what does that mean? Uh, if we're not, uh, and we're a country that has religious freedom for all, well, what does that mean? So in in that, there's um, there's not. You know, th those are sort of some of the dividing lines. Uh, part of the argument uh, comes down to the difference between the two clauses in the U.S. Constitution that the government should make no law respecting uh, an official religion or promoting a religion. Uh, at the same time, it should guarantee the free practice of religion. So when you have the free uh, exercise of religion, well, how far does that extend? Does it uh, does it mean that that free exercise could mean that the country itself decides to be um, to view itself as a Christian country? So that would be how some uh, would take that, um, and others would see that as infringing on that establishment clause that we shouldn't establish a religion. Uh, so there, it's, those lines are not 
um, as fixed in stone, you could say, as uh, as uh, as some might think that you know, the, Thomas Jefferson came up with the phrase uh, that you know it's sort of a separation wall uh, between religion and state. But uh, in the actual laws, that separation is not um, meant to exclude religion from public life, but uh, to allow it to. Uh, have a, an equal and free voice uh, in in matters of policy and and how people live. Uh, so that's sort of where the where the frictions come, uh, and uh, these things often get worked out in, uh, through different court cases or um, in cultural norms that get established. Uh, so we're still really in a dynamic time of uh, defining what all of that actually means and how it should be practiced in the United States. I watched a video you have on your website, and, and there were some amazing statistics. You talked about you know, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs in America, and that the total contribution to the U.S. economy is $1.2 trillion from people of faith, which is a humongous number. And you had a number of other statistics there. What are the things that really stand out about uh, you know the presence of faith in our country and its impact on our economy. To you, well, one of, one of the key findings of that study is that at the congregational level, congregations of all denominations of all faiths uh, in the United States contribute uh, almost four hundred billion dollars every year to the U.S. economy at the local level. So that's uh, you know just uh, to put it in context. There, there are over 344,000 houses of worship uh, of all faiths in the United States. Compared to the number of Starbucks, which we think you know are sort of on every corner, you have to walk back past 28 houses of worship till you find your first Starbucks. So in terms of uh, sort of the geography of faith in America, it, it's pervasive. There's not a town or a village that doesn't have a house of worship. Um, and in fact, you know, the town I grew up on, we had uh, at one of the main intersections, there were uh, four churches, one in each corner. Um, so it, that's part of our social fabric, but people aren't used to thinking in terms of uh, the economy of that. So what does that mean to have uh, these congregations? Well, they build buildings, they pay for electricity, they hire uh, pastors and maybe other staff. They pay uh, taxes on uh, employment taxes for everybody that they hire. So, you know, they're hiring people. They're feeding into the national coffers, paying for unemployment insurance and others, other things. Um, and uh, when it snows, they hire people to plow the snow and they um, provide, uh, you know, so there's just basic economic activity associated with faith groups. But then the value of what they provide uh, is uh, probably three times as much as the revenue and, and the expenses that they have in terms of just one category is helping people uh, suffering with addiction and helping them recover. So 120,000 congregations across America provide their space for free, either for their own programming to have uh, uh, support groups for people uh, seeking to recover from addiction. And part of a study we did, we found that those contribute $318 billion just themselves, that addiction recovery in terms of lives saved. 
So as you think about faith, you know, we, we think of soup kitchens or we think of, uh, you know, of ministering to the needy. We think of, of course, worship. Um, but the, all of this, these activities that care for people um, are, have, if you, you count it up, you, you see that it's, it contributes a lot to our economy uh, year after year. So let, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about, I mean, we hear this term over and over these days about bringing your faith to work or bringing your whole self to work. And I know this is something you're really focused on now. You're focused on religious freedom and its relationship with business. So tell us what do people mean by that expression and why is it important? If you're in a factory, uh, so you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know, most people, many people worked in factories. And so you're churning out the, you know, a product. And if you're just on the assembly line and you're producing something, um, that's a different kind of work than our, what our workplaces are today, which uh, tend to be much more um, uh, producing intellectual products or cyber products or services. Uh, so when you're in that kind of economy uh, where we're creating software. We're creating uh, solutions, uh, f- you know, for accounting and um, uh, different kinds of, you know, much, much more white collar type work. So in that kind of work, um, people are looking for what's the best way to solve a problem. What's the best way to innovate a new product, uh, to produce a new service, to sell something online, uh, expand our markets. So that requires people to uh, engage not in so much physical labor as um, creative labor and creating new ideas, new markets, new uh, products. Um, So if you want people to bring that full self of creativity into their work and and devote it to the company they're working for, um, you don't want them to uh, feel like they're not welcome. Uh, in fact, you want them to feel valued, uh, and you want them to uh, see how important they are, and that uh, you know, regardless of their race or creed or uh, sexual orientation or whatever their characteristic, if if they're working for you, you want them to feel like uh, they can they they can give their all. But if they feel like, well, because uh, you know they're of a certain race, uh, that well, we're not going to give you as good of an opportunity, pretty soon they're looking for a job somewhere else. And so you, it doesn't take too long uh, for a company uh, to lose some top talent. And, and if they find out, well, you know, we didn't feel comfortable. And when that comes to religion, um, I know some really big companies that have realized that their religious employees uh, have a different experience than people who don't identify as religious. And in fact, they find they, in uh, some companies, they found that the religious employees were not feeling at home. They were feeling like they had to hide them, hide their uh, ideas and their, um, their identities at work and just sort of keep their head down and hope not to be called out for being religious. And what they found is that then they they were just less productive. And it's not because they were religious that they were less productive. It's because they were not made to feel welcome. So these companies uh, have, some are just starting now, but some have been doing it for decades, 
realize that if they're going to get the best out of their employees, that religion's an important part to many people, and they should feel uh, at home just like you want to make anybody feel at home in the company. Um, and then what they're also realizing is that, you know, if you activate that uh, spiritual side, uh, that that may give you the next, you know, bright idea that, you know, that we're not just, um, you know, mechanical robots that think in a patterned way that maybe, you know, the connection with God, the connection with the spiritual world, the connection, uh, or even just the peace that someone has through their faith, um, that then that may trigger ideas. Uh, the the inventor, the person who first invented the laser was sitting on a bench in, in Washington, D.C., just sort of meditating. And then it was like God, you know, as he describes it, sort of uh, God gave a revelation and then he understood how the light worked. And, and uh, you know, voila, he uh, created the laser. And so, you know, we don't know where the next big idea is going to come from. So companies are realizing that if they shut out, so, you know, an important part of people's uh, full self, if you if they can only bring half their self, you know, leave your spiritual inspired self at home and just come and be your workaday self, um, you may be missing that next big thing that's really important. And then the 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 last thing is, uh, and not just it's not just an instrumental value, uh, is that in in today's workplace where people are spending a lot of time, women are you know full, fully engaged, maybe uh, uh, not to the same uh, pay grades as men. You know, there's still some inequality, but uh, women are fully in the workforce. Um, so there isn't as much, um, there's not as many people at home to uh, sort of run the social side of life. So all of those social needs that we have now are uh, in some ways being met in the workplace. There was a major uh, European company, the CEO wrote, he said, well, you know, in, in days gone by, churches and civic organizations provided community uh, for people in our society um, but today it's the company, and um, and there's some truth to that. That uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, there was a lot more uh, civic engagement. There's a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Robert Putnam uh, about how there used to be bowling clubs and societies, uh, and now you know people just bowl alone. So we've missed that. But there's so much connectedness at work. So that connectedness is uh, is empowered when people are allowed to sort of bring that um, that spiritual self to work as well. Yeah, I was watching. You had a conference back in February, and I think Ellen Barker was speaking from uh, Texas Instruments, and they've been, I guess, one of the pioneers at this sort of bringing your full self to work. And she told a couple of really cool stories. One related to. Um, Someone is at work, kind of dejected and down, and, the, and his manager asked him, "You know what's happening?" He said, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm fasting. It's Ramadan." And the manager was like, "Well, how can I help you with this? How can you know? How can we make things easier for you and better for you?" And he lit up, and and you know, he felt so listened to and appreciated. And that over time, he turned into this huge, you know, almost a recruiter for the company and an advocate, getting on social media and other places, and just saying, "What a great place to work!" And they really honor what I'm doing and. And it was just such a, a clean example of, 
you know, it gives you a better motivated, better productive, you know, more excited workforce when you do these sort of things. I, I want to mention one other person, which was, uh, I think it's Sue Warnicky. She's at uh, Salesforce and they have a thing called Faith Force, which is growing really rapidly. Uh, people of faith and they even have atheists come and join in the group. She made a statement at one point. She says, you know, there's there's a paper thin, it's paper thin the line that can be blown away you know, by simply asking people to tell their story. She, she made it sound like, you know, these walls that are between us aren't as big and hard as we think they are. And I, I thought that was really fascinating. Are you finding the same thing in your experiences? Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that uh, is really important for people is to feel like, uh, one, they're comfortable in their own skin. So when you feel like uh, you, that you're accepted, that uh, you're secure in your own position, um, it's a lot easier then to uh, reach out and, and be curious about someone else. But if, if you feel like you're having to sort of hide your own self, then it's hard to, you know, that paper wall becomes pretty, you know, a huge barrier. Um, so that's what we've been seeing is that this, that, that this has a, a, a snowball effect. So as a company opens itself to being more inclusive, uh, more open to people's identities, then that allows them to uh, uh, to be more, you know, open and have better communication with their colleagues. And I, I'd say that this came out of the diversity and inclusion movement, which mostly focused on minorities. A change has been in the United States that since uh, you know there there's no one clear. Um, denomination that outnumbers all the rest, uh, that we've had much more religious diversity, uh, that, that it's, a, it's a huge opening for everyone, uh, Christians and people of other faiths, including people of no faith, uh, to feel like, oh, well, we're, we're sort of, um, it's a good time to be curious and, and find out, you know, what people uh, are believing. And, uh, and I'll say one thing about people with Without a faith, I had a really interesting conversation um, from uh, a leader at a secular coalition within America, and she was describing how she was trying to become a chaplain at a hospital for, uh, and as a you know a humanist chaplain, and some of the barriers there, and and her own background was uh, she had a, you know grew up in a, a a family that had faith, but she had reasons she left that faith. Um, so I think as, you know, as, you know, I'm a person of faith, uh, you know, I'm, I should be curious, you know, well, what is it that, you know, why, why are you um, not interested in faith or what is it in your journey that led you to where you are? And I, and I think that there's so much we can learn uh, if we're concerned about our own faiths and, and their perception. If, if we have open and honest conversations with people who've left the faith or left our faith, or of a different faith, it, it, it gives us new insights and in, into our own faiths and maybe some of the um, er, areas where we should be growing uh, as communities as well. Is there something you want to challenge listeners to do or something you want to leave them with, some thoughts, something super important on your heart? Well, I, I, you mentioned this conference. I didn't encourage people to visit our website, uh, religiousfreedomandbusiness.org. And uh, look for the forum the, on work, uh, faith at work, and see some of these testimonies. Uh, because uh, it's hard to imagine that so much faith is happening within Fortune 500 companies, 
and uh, just you know click around, see some of the videos. You can see the one from Ellen Barker, Sue Warnicke, and many others, uh, and get a, a sense that this is actually a movement that's growing in corporate America today. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. As you mentioned already, religiousfreedomandbusiness.org on the web. This is Ed and Brian signing off from Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.